addition to finding the book of Exodus, um, please try to find Romans chapter 9. Um, Romans is the first epistle in the New Testament, so you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts and Romans. So uh, if you're new or if you missed a couple Sundays, um, for the next uh, two or three months, we will be doing a survey of the first uh, eight books of the Bible. And the way we're going to do this is we're going to do one book a week. So last week, we did the entire book of Genesis. Um, in about 30 to 35 minutes this week, we will do the book of Exodus. And uh, each, each Sunday, I'm going to begin by kind of catching you up to where we are in the story. Uh, so in Genesis last week, uh, here were a couple of things that we learned that are very important for the book of Exodus. So first, um, as you guys all know, in Genesis, God created the world. Mankind fell into sin, and that played itself out in all sorts of horrible ways. Um, but in Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abram, and he promises to make Abram, who will later be called Abraham, into a great nation and to give Abraham a particular land. And the rest of the book of Genesis are the be, or is the beginnings of that promise. And we're going to see that promise carried out or begun specifically in the book of Exodus. In fact, when we open up uh, to Exodus 1, we see that this one man, Abraham, has become a nation of, of over a million people. They've multiplied greatly. Um, at the end of the book of Genesis last week, I actually, I actually skipped this part, sorry. At uh, the end of the book of Genesis last week, uh, all 70 of Abraham's descendants and all of their families uh, are dwelling in Egypt. There was this worldwide famine uh, that drove uh, Abraham's family to go to Egypt to find refuge. Uh, and they were there, living in Egypt in the best part of the land with a king who really liked them and their brother Joseph. So that's where our story picks up in the book of Exodus. And we won't read Exodus 1, but Exodus 1 tells us that uh, hundreds of years go by, and the people of Israel, just like God predicted and promised, they multiply greatly. And there are hundreds of thousands, even perhaps close to a million of them. And this new king rises in Egypt, a king that does not remember Joseph, and he oppresses, and he makes God's people in Israel slaves. Um, so I'm going to walk through just really quickly the story of Exodus. I, I want to lay out the contents. Uh, part of this series, I want to help you guys read your Bibles. I, I want you all to be able to approach the Old Testament with some confidence. So you can write that down, take a picture of it, or just listen along. Hopefully you won't ignore me. Um, but I'm going to walk through the contents, make a couple of comments about the theme, and then we will pray and kind of dive in, okay? So uh, the book is broken up into two big parts, and if you're wondering, like, how do I break the Bible into sections, uh, sometimes it depends on what book of the Bible you're reading. So in Exodus is what's called a historical narrative, so it's a story, and the authors of the Bible were smart, and they used uh, the things that all authors and storytellers use to break up their stories. So setting uh, is one of those big things, and so the first half of Exodus, Exodus 1 to 18, uh, most of it occurs either in Egypt or on the way out of Egypt. And then Exodus 19 to 40 occurs at Mount Sinai. And as we, uh, as we read the book, we'll see there are two distinct things going on in these uh, chapters. Uh, reading Exodus 1 to 18 is actually really easy. This is probably one of the most exciting parts of the whole Bible. You see miracles on every single page. Uh, it's broken up. Uh, we'll see Israel's slavery in chapter 1. 
Moses is called by God in chapters 2 to 4. Chapters 5 to 15, this is famous. This is where all the movies are made right here of Exodus, right? Uh, all the plagues come upon Egypt. Um, and then in, in Exodus 16 to 18, after Israel is freed and delivered from Egypt, they are on their way to Mount Sinai and quite surprisingly show themselves to be just as bad as the Egyptians. It's very interesting. All right, so they get uh, the second half of the book. Israel arrives at Mount Sinai, and the God who rescued them uh, in chapters 19 to 23 uh, offers them a covenant. He offers to kind of make this relationship official, if you will. Um, starts to get really hard to read in these chapters. Uh, this is maybe chapter 24 of Exodus is where reading the Bible Old Testament really gets challenging. You've got six chapters in a row that are architectural designs about the tabernacle. We'll get there in a little bit. But the tabernacle instructions, Exodus 32 to 34, God's people very quickly break his covenant, and we see that resolved at the end of the book. So that's the layout of, uh, of Exodus. Um, it's very interesting, though. Uh, there are some things that keep coming back. No matter where we are in Exodus, there are these little phrases and words and themes that keep um, coming back again and again and again. Uh, as you're reading your Bibles uh, and you're trying to figure out what is a book about, sometimes what's helpful is to look for things that, that keep happening. And uh, 12 times in the first 14 chapters of Exodus, God says things like, so that you will know that I am the Lord. So that they will know that I am the Lord. In Exodus 14, God says that he's going to get glory over Pharaoh. And then through the rest of the book, this idea of God's glory, its appearing, its demands, dominates this book. And so we see that in this story that begins with Israel and slavery and ends with God dwelling with them in the tabernacle, and there's all this crazy stuff in between, this whole story, as we'll see, is all about God making his glory known. That is the big picture of Exodus. So um, as we read the book, again, if you uh, just walked in, uh, I want you to have your Bible open to Exodus and your ribbon flipped to Romans 9. All right. Uh, but I want you to think as, as I just pray and as we open this book up, um, what, when I think of God's glory, what do I particularly think about? Am I okay with God doing everything? for his glory. So let's pray. Lord, um, thank you uh, for the Old Testament. Thank you um, for the truth here and for how we can see you and, and enjoy and savor more of Jesus in the Old Testament. So we pray that you would do um, a great work in us this morning, that you would enlighten our minds, and that you would help us uh, to hear what you'd have us, what you'd say. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I have uh, two children and a, uh, a foster daughter at this moment. Um, and my commitment uh, to teaching my children about the Lord is sometimes fruitful, it's sometimes frustrating, and occasionally it is very, very funny. So for a while, what we were doing to teach our children about the Lord, they're, you know, six, three, and seven months. Seven-month-old doesn't really participate, but um, we were having them memorize the Reformed Children's Catechism. It's this catechism from a couple hundred years ago. And if you don't know what a catechism is, it's just truth laid out in question and answer format. So this catechism is super simple. It's beautiful because 
half of its words are like one word answers. Uh, for example, uh, question one is uh, who made you? And the answer is God. Question two is what else did God make? And the answer is everything. And question three is why did God make you and everything? Answer, for his glory. Pretty solid theology there. But here's where, here's where it gets kind of funny and instructive for us. After a few months of doing the catechism, and after my kids had memorized everything and could do it very easily, they started to make it a game and a performance. So here's how it would go. Uh, every answer would get more wild and rambunctious. So it would be like, who made you? God. What else did he make? Everything. Why did God make you and everything? For his glory, you know? <laughs> and, and one time, one time, we had friends over, and at that time our foster son, Gabriel, um, was trying to show off for our friends, and he just had this toy race car he really liked. And so the question to answer three, why did God make you and everything? He said, for his race car, you know? <laughs> and um, I was like, man, idolatry starts at a young age. No. Um, <laughs> But for real, if you know anything now about my children, you might know that they might be able to pronounce and say the phrase, the glory of God. But the way they're saying it uh, indicates that they have no idea what they are speaking of. They don't have a clue what they're talking about or singing or yelling. And I think, um, if we're honest, we're a lot more like my funny and ridiculous children than we might think. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably heard the phrase God's glory. You've probably heard people pray uh, for the glory of God. If I asked you what the point of your life was, at some point, I hope you would say uh, to glorify God. But my guess is, just in your heart posture or my experience, uh, we might say these words, but we might say them like my irreverent Gentile children. And what is so helpful about a book like the book of Exodus and books in the Old Testament like it is that it blazes some truths about God's glory, about his weight. It reminds us in some very stark colors and some very clear pictures that we do not put God in a box, that we do not contain him with our standards. Um, it helps us see like, C.S. Lewis said that God is good, but he is not safe. And so we're going um, to see God's glory in three ways in the book of Exodus. And there, again, when you teach through whole books of the Bible, um, it's very difficult to arrange the material. And so I am choosing to arrange this by the three main times in Exodus where God reveals who he is. Uh, there are these things in the Bible called theophanies. That's a fancy word for whenever God appears visibly and tangibly and he speaks audibly. And that happens many times in Exodus, actually. Um, but there are three times when God appears and speaks about himself. So we're going to look at those and talk about how those truths work out in Exodus and make a little bit of life application. So go to Exodus 3 with me really quickly. A um, little context. Moses has fled Egypt because he murdered someone. He comes to Midian, gets married. He's in his, I think, 50s or 60s. And he's about to retire as a shepherd. He's just hanging out with a bunch of sheep in the mountains, kind of, kind of enjoying his exile. He's probably forgotten about his Israelite um, brethren. But God appears to him in this very famous uh, burning bush scene. Almost all of us have heard of the burning bush or watched a movie about it. And God speaks to Moses and reveals that he is going to keep his promises to his people. 
and he's going to deliver his people from Egypt. Um, Moses is a little bit doubting. He's struggling with being called to, to do that. Um, and here's one thing he says in verse 13 to God. He asks about God's name. And in the ancient Near East, your name was much more than what your parents thought sounded good. Uh, it, was, it represented your character and who you were. So Moses, uh, in verse 13, here's what he says. If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And this is one of the most commented commentated on passages in the entire uh, Old Testament. Notice first uh, in your Bibles, uh, right after God says, I am who I am, you probably see a little tiny number right at the end of that phrase. It's called a superscript. And typically when we see uh, little numbers or letters above phrases, that means that uh, this translation, uh, the translation of this particular phrase was very difficult. And that does not mean that we have inaccurate Bibles. Typically it means that the original language was just so full and so rich that it's really hard to capture it in English. And that's very true here. Uh, this phrase is translated, I am who I am. It could be translated, I will be who I will be. It could be translated, I am what I am. I think it's left uh, deliberately a little unclear. But the idea of this, this phrase that God's name is I am is very clear. He is the being in the universe who determines his own existence. He's the only being in the universe who determines who he'll be. He's not bound to anyone or anything. Uh, there are no standards that you hold him to. There are no, you don't direct God. You don't tell him how he should act. He does not answer to humanity. He doesn't answer to the laws of nature. He is bound to nothing. I am means that he has self-determination. And we see this I am who I am kind of glory demonstrated through Exodus, primarily over his, in his sovereignty over creation. Uh, this book is chock full of miracles uh, of, God, of God demonstrating that though he set the world up with natural laws, that he is not bound by those laws. Um, the book begins with kind of the smallest of miracles of Moses being preserved in a basket as a baby floating down the Nile River. You've probably seen that dramatized in some movie with him just going above and under crocodiles and stuff. Anyways, uh, but, but the, the miracles keep going on and on and on and on. Um, he brings, and, and his miracles bring judgment. He brings plagues upon nations. He's sovereign over nature, and he's sovereign over nations. He is the I am. He does not answer to nature's laws. He does not answer to any moral qualms we have about him taking one nation for himself and him judging another nation. He is who he is. We should deal with it, adjust our lives accordingly. And there's this helpful phrase uh, as we move towards a little bit of application. Uh, it's said by many people in many contexts, but it says, begin as you mean to go. Begin as you mean to go. And uh, I think it's helpful advice. Uh, I think starting well is very important in many spheres of life. 
But it's very important to uh, remind ourselves that when it comes to God's name and how he reveals himself and how he reveals his character and who he is, this is where the Bible begins. This is where we start. And I think the idea is if you want to know God and you want to grasp who he is and you want to respond to him the way he, he would have you respond to him, you must start here. You must start with a being who determines existence, who does not answer to you, who does not owe you anything, whom you do not stand over and judge his actions. He's the one, the only being in the universe who has the right to say what some of us so foolishly say about ourselves. That's just the way I am. Only God can say that. Just consider an example. Think about uh, in, our, in our day, in our culture, people's skepticism about the Bible's miraculous um, instances, about the miracles in the Bible, or people's skepticism about the laws and the morals of the Bible. They're saying there's no way that God could act that way, or that he could demand those things of us. And that depends on what kind of God we're talking about. Someone who rejects the Bible's teaching because they just can't believe it, or because they just don't like it, what they have done is they've placed their faith already in a particular kind of God, a God that answers to them. And the Bible says here that if you want to know God, if you want to walk with him, you must start with, I am who I am. Particularly, uh, if you are a believer in Jesus in this room, I think this is very important because you really won't understand grace and you won't understand the love of God in Jesus and you won't delight in it until you first have I am who I am beaten into your brain. Um, if God, like the West kind of portrays him, is it's limited, if, he's, if he owes us salvation, if he better be nice to everybody and give salvation to everyone I think he should, if that's God, if he, if he loves me, I can just take that for granted. That's just assumed, right? And if he does things I don't understand, I can question him. But if he is the one who will be whoever he wishes to be, the fact that he loves me is marvelous. When he gives me hard stuff, I can say, well, God is God. First thing Exodus teaches is that God is who he is, and we have to adjust our lives accordingly. So that's where, uh, that's where Exodus begins in its revelation of who God is. It starts in the, the smallest of ways, right? One little bush in the middle of nowhere to one no-named exiled shepherd, and he declares that he is I am. He, he has self-existence. He's not bounded. But God, uh, God wants to go global with his glory, and there's a particular way in the first half of Exodus where God displays his glory as the great I am. And that is by redeeming and delivering his chosen people. God displays his glory in Exodus 1 through 18 and throughout history. His glory of being the one who does whatever he wishes in choosing and calling his people in spite of their sin, through no worthiness of their own. So let's go to Exodus 33, 19, a little bit later in the book. 
I'll give you a second to flip there. Exodus 33, 19. Lots of things have happened. We'll learn about them in just a minute. Um, but at this moment, uh, God is revealing uh, another aspect of his name to Moses. Remember, we started with the name in chapter 3. Now, we're having something else revealed. Um, Exodus 33, 19. We've also actually seen Moses ask God to show him his glory. Here's how God answers him in verse 19. I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Notice here how God's name and God's glory are connected explicitly to his right to be merciful to whomever he wills and to be gracious to whomever he wills. In fact, uh, the story of Exodus uh, portrays that. God gets glory. He reveals himself by choosing and calling a particular people to himself for no other reason than he promised to do so and that it honors him and glorifies him. You don't have to turn here. When I go to all these passages, you're welcome to if you'd like. In chapter 6, verses 6 to 7, God first promises to Israel to deliver them, and he says, I will deliver you from slavery to Egypt. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you to be my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Notice all of God's actions right, for this particular people are so that they would know him. And we see in Exodus that God's people aren't just saved. Uh, they are extravagantly blessed. Maybe the strangest part of this whole book, with all of its weird details, is Exodus 13. Right after the Passover, uh, Pharaoh finally chooses to let God's people go. And God says, hey, I want you to ask your Egyptian neighbor to give you all of their gold and jewels on your way out of town. And miraculously, they do. And so God's people leave Egypt not just freed, but marvelously wealthy. God's just extravagantly pouring out grace on this one particular people. And why does God choose Israel? Is it because they are these poor, oppressed people? Is it because they're more righteous than the Egyptians? No. Uh, immediately after the Exodus, in Exodus 16 to 18, uh, we see Israel on its way to Mount Sinai. And the first thing they do, they've, just li they've literally just seen God open the Red Sea let them pass, and then when the bad guys come, close it on them. They've literally just seen God do that for them. They're in the wilderness, I'm thinking for like five minutes. Their bellies grumble, and the first thing they say to God is, did you bring us out of Egypt because there weren't enough graves there? You just wanted to kill us in the wilderness. So they're, they're rebellious people. They don't, they, don't have, they don't have a lot of faith. So God's cho choosing them just to be gracious. But God also, uh, he doesn't just show his glory by being merciful. He makes himself known to the Egyptians through judgment. In chapter 7, verse 5, he's speaking to Moses about his great acts of judgment. And he says this, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Everybody's Notice how everyone here is knowing God. The Israelites are knowing him through mercy. 
The Egyptians are knowing him through judgment. It gets even more intense. Exodus 9, 16. God speaks to Pharaoh, and he says, For this purpose I have raised you up. In other words, I'm the reason you're king. All right? For this purpose I've raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God raised up Pharaoh, this wicked king, who resisted him at every turn. And the reason he raised up Pharaoh is so that his glory and his name would be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And what's really funny is as we read the rest of our Bibles, we see this purpose fulfilled. A couple weeks from now, we'll be in Joshua. And in Joshua, one of the first things they do is they come to Jericho. And uh, the the spies uh, that go in uh, to this Jericho lady prostitute's house. But she tells them, 40 years after this happens, we're still talking about Egypt. The whole, our whole city is trembling because we've heard about this God. But notice, God gets glory. He makes his name known by choosing a particular people to be merciful to and by judging their enemies. And you might be wondering, if Israel is just as wicked as Egypt, why bless one and not the other? Here's the answer that Exodus gives us. We gotta hear this as Westerners. We gotta hear this. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. God displays his glory, this particular kind of glory that says, I am who I am. He displays that glory globally by being merciful to a particular people. And there is no reason for it other than he loves to pour out his love. And this theme in Exodus brings us to one of the great difficulties of reading the book of Exodus. And I'm going to try my best in these lessons on books of the Bible to address uh, difficulties and challenges people raise uh, against the Bible's teaching. Last week we talked a lot about creationism and and all that kind of stuff. But uh, this week there's this particular challenge in Exodus, and it is uh, a theological challenge. It is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So in Exodus uh, 5 to 15, there's a lot of back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh. And all the time, Moses is saying, let my people go. This is what God's going to do. We're going to send a plague. Pharaoh's like, uh-uh, I ain't doing that. Plague comes. He's like, oh, man, take the plague away. And he, he, just keeps, he just keeps, as the Bible says, hardening his heart. At one point, even his counselors are like, you're an idiot. Like, let the people of Israel go. And he doesn't. But in Exodus 4.21 and Exodus 7.3, God goes as far as to say this. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This passage seems to indicate that God was involved in some way in making someone, Pharaoh particularly, less responsive to himself. And that sounds, uh, to put it, you know, that sounds pretty not cool of God, right? Um, It sounds like God has become this wicked puppet master. And if you you believe the Bible, we know that's not true. James 1 says, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. So let me just... I'm going to tackle this for three minutes, four minutes. We'll try to make a little application. So first, two things from Exodus that we see. Uh, God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. It's important that it's Pharaoh. What has Pharaoh done to this point? Pharaoh is a wicked pagan king who has already attempted genocide on Israel. 
he ordered that all the Israelite baby boys be murdered. So it's not like the Bible says that God hardens the heart of a poor six-month-old baby that they never have a chance. No, no, no. He hardens this heart, this particular wicked, sold-into-sin heart. And throughout the Bible, when we read of God hardening hearts, typically the people whose hearts are hardened are people who are already in places of great wickedness. Second, notice that God hardening Pharaoh's heart is paired with Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Three times in Exodus, chapter 8, verse 15, chapter 8, 32, and chapter 9, 34, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And so do not get the picture that Pharaoh is this poor, innocent guy that God just acts upon. No, he's active in the hardening of his heart. He's choosing his sin. And how God's sovereignty and Pharaoh's responsibility play together, I don't know. The Bible does not answer that question clearly. But uh, there is a passage in the Bible that addresses this difficulty. Uh, It's maybe not the answer we would like to hear. Uh, Let's go to Romans 9 really quickly. This is where I asked you guys to ribbon your Bibles. Hopefully you can get there quickly. Uh, If you need a minute to find it, uh, a little bit of context for you. Paul is addressing a very difficult question. Again, now just flip your minds, okay? We're 1,500 years later. Jesus has come, died, and risen again. And there are all these people from all the nations of the earth that are coming to know him. It, like, we're, we're in the time of the book of Acts right now. And, uh, but there's one particular people, uh, the Jews, the Israelites, who primarily are resisting Jesus and even persecuting his church. And Paul, in, in, in Romans 9, expresses his great sorrow this is going on, but he's trying to answer this question. Um, has God failed because the Israelites are not believing in Jesus? And the, interestingly enough, in verse 17, Paul quotes Exodus. He quotes Exodus 9, where, where God speaks to Pharaoh and says, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And then, these next four verses, Paul interprets them and he applies them. So let's just hear what he says about this, this difficult issue. So then, God, or he, has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? Now here, verse 22 and 23. These are, these are the purposes we see. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Did you notice how Romans 9 answers the question of why? Romans 9, verse 23 says that God does this, this hard thing that is so difficult for a human heart to accept, that some God chooses and some he doesn't. It says here in Romans 9 that God does that so that his glory may be known in riches for those people who are vessels of mercy. And in the book of Romans, what's a vessel of mercy? It's any person who's believed in Jesus. 
Anyone who's come to him by faith. Anyone who's rested upon him. So if that's you this morning, the answer to the question of why would God be gracious to whom he's gracious and not to everybody, the answer is for your sake, so that you can see more of his glory. And that may not be an answer you'd come up with. But, the, but we've got to embrace this about God, that for his chosen people, right, there's this passage in, a, in Ephesians, I think it's Ephesians 3 or 4, where it says that, that God has declared that in the coming ages, his people would continually see the riches of his grace. And God's purpose is here in showing mercy to whom he shows mercy and, and being gracious to whom he'll be gracious. It is for the church. If you believe in Jesus, it's for you. It's for your good. Let me, let me be more clear maybe about how this might work in your life, just in a practical sense. Um, can't you see that you are a lot like Pharaoh, that you think you're the king or queen. Sometimes you think that God should bend his will to your will. Um, God did not and does not owe you salvation. Uh, There's this great song called All I Have is Christ, and it says, if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Don't you guys know that's every person in this room if you're a believer? And even though you deserve death, God chose. He chose you in spite of yourself. He chose you. He, 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 he reached into your heart. He changed you. He drew you to himself in the middle of your rebellion and wickedness. The idea that God can choose whomever he will. When you're one of the people he's called, and if you've, if you've, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, that means you're one of those people he's called. Right? It, should, it should be marvelous to you. It should be, it should be a, a well of thanksgiving for your life. That is what the Bible, that's how, where the Bible tells us to go with this truth. For some reason, not because of who I am, but just because God loves being gracious, he's chosen me. It is a wonder that we can contemplate forever. So we've seen God's glory in itself, the I am. We've seen him display this glory uh, globally through being gracious to a particular people. And now we're going to see what God's glory looks like among this particular people. So we've been primarily dealing with what's going on in Exodus 1 to 18 so far. Uh, God redeeming his people, displaying his glory through the Exodus. Uh, but in Exodus 19 to 40, that's a, that's a zero. Um, Exodus 19 to 40, we're going to see God, God's glory dwelling among his people. And we're going to see something very particular revealed about God's glory dwelling among his people. Um, let's go to Exodus 34. Uh, we'll go back to be our last. Well, we'll have one more Bible flip, okay? Um, Exodus 34. God's going to reveal something else about himself to Moses. Just really quickly, um, reading this section of the Bible is very difficult. Uh, uh, Chapters 9 and 23 are the Ten Commandments and then a bunch of laws that don't seem to make sense to us. Uh, Chapters 24 to 31 are literally construction instructions. In chapter 32, we see a famous covenant-breaking incident, and then we have basically all of these instructions restated in the construction of the tabernacle. This can be difficult. Uh, But I think there's this Exodus 34 and what God reveals in it 
uh, helps us see what all of this is about. So look at Exodus 34, 6 to 7. This is after uh, the Lord reveals to Moses that he's gracious to whom he's gracious. Here's what he says, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before Moses and, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is a very uh, tense and mysterious statement. God reveals to Moses two things that seem to be at odds. First, that he is forgiving and gracious and merciful. And second, that he punishes sin. It doesn't, ma- doesn't seem to make sense that those go together. But that's in fact what this entire section of Exodus teaches. Uh, there's three main things here. The covenant, the tabernacle, and the breaking of the covenant. All of these things teach us that God is merciful and gracious, but he's also just. Um, now, first thing we see is the covenant. And I will try to run through these relatively quickly. Uh, a covenant, quite simply, if you're wondering what a biblical covenant is, it's a deal based on promises between two parties. And in Exodus 19, God invites his people into covenant. Hear these words. You, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Just think about that. Think about how you would feel if that was you. You had just been delivered out of slavery. God had just called you to himself, and he just offered you that you would be his treasure that is full of love and grace and mercy. But the next thing that happens is that God's glory comes down on Mount Sinai and it explodes into a firestorm and everyone's terrified. And God tells Moses, don't let anyone come near the mountain lest they die. And then God gives them a series of laws in the covenant Uh, Many of these laws, if broken, require the death penalty. And so we see this very tense message. I love you. I'm merciful. You are the most privileged of all people. But you'd better obey my voice because I'm just. The tabernacle gives us a similar message. Um, The tabernacle specifically speaks to God's people and says, I myself will dwell with you. But you need to be careful, lest my presence destroy you. Now again, uh, Exodus 25 to 30, 31, detail the construction and running of the tabernacle. Uh, If you're wondering what the tabernacle was, it was uh, in the Old Testament. Um, God's presence, uh, as we've seen in this book a little bit, uh, is very dangerous. We'll see that in a second. But but he chose to make one place uh, in the earth um, where his presence could tangibly dwell. Here in Exodus is the tabernacle, this tent that could move with the people of Israel as they went. Uh, later in the, the Old Testament, we see it in the temple. But just think about the tabernacle as the one place in the world where God's visible, tangible glory could be experienced. And uh, I'm not going to get into these because we don't have time, but the details in the tabernacle construction, you might need to get a good commentary here. 
they paint this picture of the Garden of Eden. There's all these little details there where this is going to be this one little place now that's a restored Garden of Eden where God and man can dwell together. Um, but when you're reading this section, you might be like, what in the world does the scarlet fabric with 50 rings have to do with my life? Or why is it important that there's a golden lampstand or bread or horns on the altar? Uh, just consider this for a moment, all right? You are charged with building uh, the world's most powerful nuclear reactor. And uh, this reactor is going to bless and, and help millions of people, all right? But you are charged to build this nuclear reactor in your backyard, all right? Would you rather the instructions be very detailed or just kind of like, meh? <laughs> What's your preference? All right, probably very detailed instructions. We've all assembled something from Lowe's with bad instructions, right? Um, but, but the idea is that the reason it's important to have detailed instructions is because what we're dealing with, though it can be a great blessing, is very dangerous. And for sinners, that is what God's glory is like. It is the source of all life and goodness and joy and purity. But for sinners who approach it in wrong ways, it's destructive. Next week in Leviticus, we'll see two of the most important people in all Israel, Aaron's sons, the high priest's sons. They enter the temple, just kind of like, what? or they enter the tabernacle, kind of like whatever, and they're both killed immediately. God's glory is wonderful, but it's dangerous. That's what the tabernacle teaches. And then the breaking of the covenant. There's this famous incident, uh, but it says the same thing in different ways. God says, I will punish your sins, but I will not break my promises. I will not leave you. Um, chapter 32 describes this. Uh, Moses goes up on the mountain to get the tabernacle instructions for about 40 days. And after saying, after Israel says, man, we would love to be God's people. This sounds like a great deal. We're going to keep these words. Uh, the first thing they do is get impatient and decide not just to be bad, but to make for themselves their own gods. They go to the high priest Aaron. They ask him to make a golden calf. They literally break the first two commandments. That's their first act as God's people. It would be like someone committing adultery on their honeymoon. That's what happens in Exodus 32. And uh, they actually get up and rise to play as the scriptures say, probably meaning they have a giant drunken orgy in their new God's honor. That's the first thing they do as a nation. And uh, chapters 32 and to 34 describe all this horror. And uh, the Lord's continually saying, I'm going to destroy this people, Moses. And Moses intercedes for them, and God relents. And then God says, all right, well, you guys can go, but I can't go with you. And Moses intercedes, and God relents. And he finally says in Exodus 33, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest but not before thousands of people in Israel, probably the ones who started all this, are killed by the Levites. Again, the breaking of the covenant, this whole instance, it teaches us, God is saying to us, I will punish your sins, but I will never leave you. We could probably summarize all this with a, I think C.S. Lewis quotes are just good. We could summarize this, but here's what Lewis says about the God of love. He says this, you asked for a loving God you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked is present. Not a senile benevolence that wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not a conscientious judge. Not the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests. But the consuming fire himself. 
the love that made the world, persistent as the artist's love for his work, and despotic as a man's love for his dog, provident and venerable as a father's love for his child, jealous, inexorable, and exacting as love between the sexes. That is how we see God's love among his people, his glory among his people at the end of Exodus. And there is this tension, uh, a tension that is not resolved until we get to Jesus. How in the world can God both forgive and be gracious and love his people and punish their sins justly? But the tension's resolved. Um, uh, later in the Bible, in fact, 1,500 years later, this tension is resolved in a way that I think, I think a lot of people in here are a little uncomfortable with what Exodus reveals about God. You've kind of been like, whoa, I don't know if I can agree with that or like that. But I, I think the tensions here are resolved in the New Testament in such a way that any misgiving we have about God's rule or any doubts we might have about his grace and mercy towards us are resolved. God's love and his justice come together in the gospel of Jesus. Consider what Romans 3 says. You guys can turn here or just, just hear this. Here's what the Lord says. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Now hear this part. Here's who Christ Jesus is. He's the one whom God put forward as an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he'd passed over former sins and it was to show his righteousness now so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just consider all the things in Exodus that have been so tense. How can God punish sin and forgive sinners? He does so by punishing his son for his people's sins. God's justice, his goodness is met in the gospel so that for people who receive Jesus by faith, who trust him, it can be just love. God, God, God both is punished and just with your sins, and he's merciful and gracious because the punishment has fallen on Jesus. All the judgments on Egypt, you might, you might, you might, you might think, man, God, God's unjust to judge Egypt like this. Did you know they all just point towards the judgment that fell upon his own son. Every plague, the Passover, they're all just little pictures of Jesus bearing the wrath of God so that anyone who wants to can come. If you are a little perturbed or afraid of the great I am, look at the gospel of Jesus. If you are struggling with God's sovereignty, Look at this free offer of righteousness by faith. So in conclusion, uh, I think that reading Exodus, honestly, is kind of like watching a space shuttle launch. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen a space shuttle launch, uh, but the videos are typically from hundreds of feet away because it takes a small explosion to get a space shuttle into space. Anyways, just imagine, though, that you're in person and you're about 100 feet away when the shuttle takes off. And all of a sudden, your world becomes fire and smoke and heat, and the earth is shaking. Um, I think when you read Exodus, that's, that's its picture of God. There's fire. There's some danger. It's kind of like your entire life, you've looked at God the way a little kid looks at a tiger in a zoo. You know, it's cool, right? but he's also just over there sleeping. 
Exodus is like being thrown in the exhibit, right? And the tiger gets up, and he starts to prowl. He's a little dangerous. You're not totally sure what he's going to do. A little wild. But I think, um, again, I've just said this, but I think it's important to realize that the shuttle that launches in Exodus lands. It lands in what we, what we read about God in the New Testament, right? The one, who, the one who said, I am who I am, also said, I am the good shepherd. And I am, do not be afraid, right? The one whom said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I think uh, it's this book and all the fire and smoke and heat we, we feel in it that helps us really grasp the precious and unexpected nature of grace. I think if you spend some time in the fire and smoke of Exodus, you will find yourself much more surprised and satisfied by the water of life that Jesus gives. That's my hope for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this, uh, this book and for what we see of Jesus in it. And I pray that you would uh, just write these truths upon our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.